Welcome to Central Study Hour here at Sacramento Central Seventh-day Adventist Church. We're so happy that you have joined us today, whether you're watching locally or around the world. We're so happy that you've tuned in with us. Today, we have some beautiful songs that we'd like to sing today with you. The first song is hymn number 373, Seeking the Lost, verses 1, 2, and 3. And this song comes a request as a request from Michael Hayes, a member of our own here at Sacramento Church. And we'll be verse, singing again verses 1, 2, and 3. be 422 marching to Zion and this request comes from five people today Michelle Thompson from Sheridan Illinois Mary Ellen McDermott from Charlotte North Carolina and I have to just say that that comes a special place to my heart because I wasn't uh, far from there that I was born so um, thank you Mary, Mary Ellen for sending that in Brian Higby from Pasadena, California, Aldair Cruz from Decatur, Alabama, Sarah Perez from Mexico City, Mexico. And we will be singing verses 1 and 4.
Then let every tear be dry. We're marching through Emmanuel's ground. I'm, I am looking forward to that time where we can go to feral worlds, worlds on high and be with our Savior, aren't you? If you have a special request, then go to our website at sackcentral.org. Click on the Contact Us link and tell us who you are, where you're from, and we'll be so happy to sing your favorite hymn. Now, as we're moving through our topical list, we've come to the end of our song under Love for One Another. The song is 587, In Christ There Is No East or West, verses 1 and 2. Father, thank you so much for being our Savior, our High Priest, and our brother. And I thank you for the Sabbath day that you've given to us. Open our hearts and our minds. May the Holy Spirit fill us as we listen to your word being broken for us and help us to share it with others and be ready for that day when you come in the clouds and be with Pastor Chris as he uh, shares with us the Sabbath school lesson this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Our Sabbath school lesson will be brought to us by Pastor Chris Buttery, our senior pastor here at Sacramento Seventh-day Adventist Church. Thank you very much, and uh, good morning. Good to see you. Happy Sabbath to each one. Hope everyone is well, and uh, I trust you had a good week. Uh, what a delight to share in God's Word together again uh, this morning. Uh, thank you to our choristers and thank you to everyone just sang beautifully as usual here this morning. I want to welcome those that are joining us and uh, glad that you're doing so. We have a free offer for you. It's offer number 21509 and all you need to do is call in at uh, 916-457-6511 to receive your free offer. Just tell us who you are and what you want, whether you want the CD version or the DVD version. We'll be happy to get that to you or you could email us at csh at saccentral.org. I want to make sure you get that. And for those that are watching, you can also download the lessons. If you don't have a study guide, you can also download the lessons at our website at saccentral.org and just click on the CSH banner and you'll be able to find what you need there. Well, we're uh, delving into our next lesson in our study guide and it's words of truth, words of truth. And uh, that's lesson number nine. And I hope you've got your lessons there and your Bibles open, and I'm going to get there here. There we are. Lesson number nine, words of truth. 
And we have a, uh, the memory text is found from Proverbs chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. And let's read that uh, here together. It says, Have I not written to you excellent things of counsel and knowledge that I may know, that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth that you may answer words of truth to those who send to you or who send you. Whether a person lives in the Americas, Africa, Asia, even Australia, truth is truth. It doesn't change. Um, if it weren't truth, then if it weren't, then it wouldn't be truth or considered truth. Truth is defined, according to the dictionary, as conformity to fact or actuality, a statement proven to be or accepted as true. That's what truth is. Um, and, you know, we live in a world today where some people say that uh, there is no true reality, there is only perceptions, and there is only opinions, and that constitutes a truth or their truth. Everything, therefore, just becomes relative to somebody else and therefore can be no actual reality. And because of that, there is ultimately no moral absolutes, no authority for deciding if an action is positive or negative or right or wrong. You're just kind of floating around doing whatever. Um, now, if there is no right or wrong, then whatever feels right at that particular time, in that particular situation, is then right. And that's where we get situational ethics from. And that leads to a subjective, um, whatever feels good mentality and lifestyle, um, which, which naturally has a devastating result on society and can have a dev devastating effect on individuals. Um, we live in what is termed the postmodern world. And um, this is what we've just talked about briefly, is postmodernism. If it feels right, do it. If, it. if it seems right, then it must be right. If it feels right, then it must be right. And um, it creates, this thinking creates a society that regards all values, all beliefs, all lifestyles, and truth claims as equally valid. But that can't be right. That can't be right. Now, there are others who argue that there are absolute truths. I would argue that. I'm sure you would as well. This means actions can be determined to be either right or they can be determined to be either wrong or wrong. And, uh, and they measure up to absolute standards as you measure them according to absolute standards. Now, if there is no absolute, then what happens? Basically, chaos ensues. Ask this question, is there any evidence that absolute truth exists in the world? This is for, for someone who may be struggling with that question. Uh, can, we really, can we really be sure that there are universal truths? Um, I want to give three uh, basic uh, evidences in the world today that there are absolute truths. The first one is that there is a human conscience, the human conscience. Uh, and that says that that is something within us tells us that the world should be a certain way, that some things are right and some things are wrong. Uh, our conscience convinces us uh, that there is something wrong when somebody is suffering, when there's starvation, when there is a murder, when there is a crime, when there might be pain, a rape. We, 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 something in us tells us it's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. 
And it also makes us aware, our conscience makes us aware that love and generosity and compassion and peace are positive things for which we all strive for. So, this is universally true, basically, in, in all cultures. So, that's one evidence, the conscience. Certain, something within us saying, this is right, this is wrong. Second evidence for the existence of absolute truth is in science. Science. Now, science is simply the pursuit of what? Knowledge. That's really what it is, the pursuit of knowledge. The study of what we know and the quest to know more. Therefore, all scientific study must by necessity be founded upon the belief that there are objective realities existing in the world and that these realities can be discovered and proven. Without absolutes, what would there be for the scientists to study? Not much of anything, would there? No. A third response or a third evidence for the existence of absolute truth or universal truth is religion. Religion. All the religions of the world attempt to give meaning and definition to life. And through religion, humans seek God, they seek hope for the future, forgiveness of sin, peace even in the midst of struggles, and even answers to our deepest questions. Religion is really evidence that mankind is more than some highly evolved ape or monkey. It's evidence of a higher purpose and the existence of a personal and purposeful uh, Creator God who implanted in man's heart the desire to get to know Him. And if there is indeed a Creator, then He becomes the standard, or He sets the standard of absolute truth, and it is His authority that establishes the truth. You remember, it's, it's told or said of Jesus uh, in John chapter 14, verse 6, He said, I am the way, the truth and the life. And then in John 17, 17, Jesus praying for His disciples and for you and I, He says, Lord, Father, sanctify them through Thy truth, Thy Word is truth. So, God has established the, um, uh, what, the abs what absolute truth is and how we measure, uh, what we measure right and wrong by, and that is by the Word of God. We can measure right and wrong by the life of Jesus. Uh, the Bible even tells us that the law of God is truth, and so we can measure right and wrong according to the, the law of God, the Ten Commandments, you see. So, God establishes truth. So, these are several evidences in just the world around us uh, that, that declare that there are absolute truths. Now, uh, when, when some were asked um, what universal truths there are that exist in the world, certain individuals weighed in, and here I want to share with you some of their responses. Um, some of them are a little humorous, some are, are thought-provoking. Um, some people chimed in and said there are no universal truths, uh, which in effect would suggest that that is one universal truth. If a person suggests there is no universal truth, then that must be a universal truth, right? Um, any case, when asked about some universal truths, here are some, here are some of the following responses. One person said death and taxes. Uh, another person said some things just take time. Uh, you can't hurry up the, um, the development of a baby within the womb of its mother. You, no matter what you do, it takes nine months to develop, you see. Um, someone said Pop-Tarts, you just can't eat one. Um, Truth is, always, truth is always true, even if no one believes it to be. That's, that's fair enough, that's good. 
Um, <laughs> someone said ketchup makes everything taste better. Someone said amen. All right. <laughs> um, your friend's lunch is always more appealing than yours. That's another universal truth according to someone. A bachelor is an unmarried male. Now, that makes sense. That's a universal truth, isn't it? Sure. Uh, anything that can go wrong will go wrong. That's Murphy's Law, I guess. Uh, you cannot plan to be spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you cannot make everyone happy at the same time. That's true. Um, someone even piped up and said, men will be men. I don't know what they mean by that, but that's what they said. And uh, another universal truth is, my name is Chris. That's a truth. And your name is Richard, and your name is Mike. Yeah, that's something you cannot change. Now, in the chapters we're going to be looking at here in the book of Proverbs, chapter 22 through 24, we're going to, the wise man provides certain universal absolutes uh, that we ought to give serious consideration to. Um, and before we do that, we, let's go over to Proverbs though, Proverbs chapter 22, we're going to start there. We want to consider, before we, we look at those absolutes, we want to consider how truth should and can impact our lives, how truth can and should impact our lives. So we're over in Proverbs chapter 22. Let me ask you a question, is it easy to be confronted with the truth? Is it easy to be confronted with the truth? We're going to go over to Sunday's lesson, the knowledge of truth. The knowledge of truth. Is it easy to be confronted with truth? No. No, it's not always easy being confronted with truth. Uh, sometimes truth hurts. Um, but it's, if it's for our betterment, then, uh, then it's good that we were confronted with truth. It's not always easy waking up in the morning and looking in the mirror. It can be a scary uh, process. Um, but being confronted with the truth is better than the alternative, and that is being lied to. Uh, it's no fun being lied to. You don't like it when you're lied to. Uh, someone suggested, he said, I'm not upset that you lied to me. I'm upset from, that from now on I cannot believe you. Uh, lies create, in essence, distrust, and they hurt relationships. Uh, the Bible tells us that God, and we talked about this briefly just a few moments ago, that tr God is the embodiment of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, God desires for us to know the truth, and even if, it, even if it might hurt us a little bit, even if it might mean that we might misunderstand His intentions initially, God's desire is for us to know the truth. He wants us to be confronted with it because truth will do what? Will set us free. That's what, yeah, that's what Jesus said in uh, John 8, 32. The truth will set us free. God wants us liberated and walking with Him in truth and in righteousness, you see. Uh, what's the best way to approach truth? So you've been confronted with truth. What's the best way to approach truth? Uh, Proverbs chapter 22. Let's look at verses 17 and 18. And notice, uh, notice what uh, the wise man says. How, how do we approach truth? First of all, he says we should do what with our ears? We should incline our ear to hear the words of the wise. So we should, in essence, uh, that word incline means to bow or to bend in humility or to pay attention, or as the young people would say, focus on the words of the wise. That's the admonition that, uh, that, that, the, that God gives us here. So when we approach, when we're approached with truth, someone comes along, shares with us truth. We are to bow or bend our ear in humility to pay attention or to focus on the thing that's being said. What else does it say? Incline your ear and and hear. So listen and also hear or comprehend 
or understand what it is uh, that, uh, that God says I'm trying to tell you, for instance. So, first of all, we're to incline our ear, we're then to hear or to understand them. What does it say? Incline your ear and hear the words of the wise and do what? Apply your heart, apply your heart to my knowledge. Apply your heart. In the, the, the Greek, the trans, English translation from the Greek should, should say, cause to occur, cause to occur, or to do the things that you hear me telling you to do. That's really what it's, it's saying. Um, so we're to apply our heart to cause to occur or to do the things you've heard through faith, love, and consideration. Some people have more facts about faith than they do about faith, than they do have faith. Some people have more knowledge about truth than knowing the way, the truth, and the life. Um, Christians get stuck in this position sometimes where we know the right thing to do and we're not applying it to our hearts. We're not causing it to occur in our lives or to do the thing through faith, love, and consideration that God is asking us to do. And so we're to apply the things that God has asked us to do. Now look with me at... uh, at the next, this is the fourth area, what do we do when we're confronted with truth? Incline our ear, hear the words of the wise, uh, end of verse 17, apply your heart to my knowledge, and verse 18, for it is a pleasant thing if you do what? Keep them within you, keep them within you, let them all be fixed upon your lips. So forth, we are to put the words of truth within us, now, I went yesterday and bought a donut, and not because I was going to eat it, but I was going to bring it here to do an illustration, and I completely left it in my car and forgot to bring it up front today. But I was going to have on a plate an, a donut and an apple. And naturally, the donut looks a lot better than an apple, even though they shine up the apple. Uh, the donut sometimes smells better than an apple. Um, so which one should we eat, the donut or the apple? <laughs> Which one do we want to eat? <laughs> Someone said the donut. Yeah, we should eat the donut. Um, okay, fair enough. We should eat the apple. We know the right thing to do, but how often do we do it? All right, so we take the apple, slice the apple, and then what do we do with the apple? We eat it. We assimilate the apple. The apple then becomes what? A, a part of us, right? It's broken down, and then it, you know, into carbohydrates and all the rest, sugars and so on. It becomes a part of us. You know, this, the adage, you are what you eat, is so true. You don't want to be a donut. You want to be, you want to be an apple. If you're going to be anything, you want to be an apple. Um, God is encouraging us here in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 18, when he says, to keep them within you, we are to digest the words that he speaks, the words of wisdom. We are to assimilate, we are to let his words become a part of our very lives. And, it, and, it, and, it, and that, is, that happens when we uh, apply the words that Jesus, uh, that Jesus uh, tells us or gives to us to follow, you see. Uh, many know the right thing to do, but sometimes don't do it. God wants his word, his wisdom, his truth to become a part of us when it says within us, within you, it's talking about the stomach. That's what it's talking about, the stomach. So let it be, the truth be digested and assimilated. And you may be wondering, how do you do that? I mean, how do you, how do you, you just, you, sometimes you've got to chew on God's Word. Let your mind chew 
on God's Word. Think about it. Sometimes even meditate on God's Word. It's okay. The, the psalmist says meditate, uh, meditate on God's Word. It's good to meditate on God's Word, not just empty your head and just let the enemy put whatever in your head he wants. No, meditate on God's Word. Allow, uh, allow the Word to just become a part of you. Picture the story. Put yourself in the story. Apply the words to your heart. Digest. Assimilate. So these are, this is the best way to approach words of wisdom or truth. Uh, to incline our ear, to bow our ear, to understand, to apply, and to let it become a part of our very lives. All right, so what will truth do for us? We're going over to, uh, we're still in verse 18, the second part of verse 18, and we're going to read through to verse 21. Proverbs chapter 22, second part of verse 18 through 21. It says, for it is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Let them all be fixed upon your lips so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have instructed you today, even you, have I not written to you excellent things of counsels and knowledge that I may make you know the certainty of the words of truth, that you may answer words of truth to those who send you. That was our memory text there. And so, what's, what will truth do for us according to these verses? Notice what it says in the last part of verse 18, that the words of truth might be fixed where? Fixed on our lips. It's kind of an interesting thing to think about. In other words, have the truth securely placed or fastened that we might be fitted to share it with others because that's what's coming in the next verses. I've given you the words of truth that you might tell others the words of truth, that you might share the, the words of truth, that they might be benefited as you are benefited, you see. So uh, the truth will fasten, uh, will fix our, our course in sharing the truth. We'll know the truth. We're living the truth by God's grace. It's become a part of us and therefore it becomes fixed on our lips and we're ready to share with others. Also, the scripture tells us in verse 19 that we might know the truth so that we might do what? We might trust in the Lord, that we might learn to trust the Lord. Um, the goal of knowing truth is not uh, just, isn't just receiving knowledge or head knowledge, but in knowing and trusting the Lord. That's the reason for truth. The reason that God describes and, and, and shares truth with us is not just that we might have a head knowledge, but that our, we might have the experience of truth in our lives. Uh, if, you were to, if you were to trust the Lord, that would just simply mean that, mean that you put your full weight, your full weight upon Him. You trust Him implicitly. For some, uh, the word trust the Lord seems more of a cliche, uh, but uh, there are the, the, the phrase trust the Lord is rich and full of significance. Truly, we ought to trust the Lord. What it, whether it turns out the way we expect it to or not, we can trust the Lord. How can we trust the Lord? How do we trust the Lord? You can't trust somebody you don't know, right? And that's why in the previous verses, we're encouraged to know the truth, to know Jesus, who is the truth. And in knowing Him, we'll learn to love Him. And in learning to love Him, we'll learn to trust Him. You can't just automatically wake up one morning and trust the Lord. God wants us to, to get to know Him. What did uh, Jesus say in John 17 and verse 3? He said, this is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's life eternal, to know God, to intimately know Him, to get acquainted with His ways, His purposes, His plans, to love Him. And in loving Him, we trust Him. Amen. Yeah, we can. We can trust the Lord. We can put our full weight upon the Lord, you see. So that's what truth does. It, tr truth fastens our lips, prepares us to share, 
Truth leads us to trusting the Lord. Uh, isn't that the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Isn't that what we've, we've learned along the way? Proverbs 1, 7, 9, 10, and 15, 33. And notice that the things that, that God is sharing with us, that the wise man is sharing under inspiration, are not just common things. What type of things are they, according to verse 20? They're excellent things. Excellent things, not trivial, not for amusement, but for the glory of God, for the happiness and holiness of His people and for the welfare of humanity. That's why truth is shared. That's why wisdom is shared. Now, what else does truth do for us? Verse 21, that I may make you know the what? Certainty. The certainty of the words of truth. We all know about the desire for certainty and the need to know why we believe what it is we believe. It's not just enough to know what, what you believe. Uh, God expects us to be able to give, a, give an intelligent answer to our faith. And by definition, faith is not having all the answers, uh, but we at least ought to be able to uh, intelligently declare and share our faith in a logical way so people can understand and perhaps even learn to appreciate it themselves and accept uh, that truth you see. So God wants us to be certain, to know certain things and to know why we believe what it is that we believe. Now notice, the last thing truth will do for us, the last thing truth will do for us, it says that you may answer words of truth to those who send you. In other words, it will prepare us to be able to share with others. Knowing truth brings with it the responsibility to tell others. Um, someone said, others must be able to light their candle at your lamp. And so, if we have the word of truth burning in our hearts, then others will be able to light their candle at our lamps and take the, the torch of truth to others as well, allow that truth to burn in their hearts. What did Peter say in 1 Peter 3.15? Do you remember? He said, we always ought to be ready to give an answer, intelligent answer for our faith with, with meekness and with fear. Not, not, not be cocky or I know the truth and, so, and you're wrong and I'm right. No, but with meekness, recognizing that we, we've discovered this, uh, God has led us to this. Well, we didn't arrive on it, so to speak, on our own. God was helping us all along the way. And, and we were confronted with truth and we were humbled and we, we recognized we were sinners and we gave our lives to Jesus in meekness, recognizing that truth certainly can set a person free just like it set you free. It can set them free as well. So that's what truth does for us. That's what the knowledge of truth does for us, not just knowing about truth or knowing truth, knowing, uh, having a knowledge of truth, but knowing truth, who is Jesus Christ. Let him become a part of our lives uh, entirely. Let's go to Monday's lesson. Let's go over to Monday's, robbing the poor. So here are some, uh, we're going to look at four universal truths that uh, we discover here in, in Proverbs chapter 22 and 23 and 24, because that's what we're reviewing here this week. Robbing the poor, universal truth number one, here it is. God is a defender of the helpless. That's universal truth number one. God is a defender of the helpless. Let's look at that. Proverbs chapter 22, verses 22 and 23. Notice what it says. It says, do not rob the poor because he is poor, nor oppress the afflicted at the gate. For the Lord will plead their cause and plunder the soul of those who plunder them. Now jump over to chapter 23 and verse 10. Do not remove the ancient landmark 
nor enter the fields of the who? The fatherless. So notice who the wise man is talking about. He's talking about the poor, he's talking about the afflicted, the oppressed, and he's also talking about the fatherless. And God says that he will plead, he will plead their cause. Basically, the poor would be the, the helpless, the powerless. Um, we know poverty can be debilitating and can lead to such things as crime, um, high mortality rate or high death rate um, because of poor health and poor building structures which topple down on people. Um, poverty also uh, has and can lead to the trafficking of children. And uh, we know from what we uh, read in the, in the news occasionally and some documentaries have come out uh, talking about this, this uh, horrible, these horrible things where young children in poverty-stricken regions in certain countries of the world are being trafficked. So uh, poverty is, is a horrible thing. It's even worse when people take advantage of people's poverty. And that's what, this, that's what the wise man is saying right here. Stealing is always wrong. Uh, stealing is wrong. Robbing from the poor is wrong. But to rob them, to make them poorer, is horrible. And, um, and to rob from someone who cannot defend themselves, don't have the money to, uh, to get a lawyer on their side, so to speak, is especially heinous. And only a coward would perpetrate that foolishness. Now, it's interesting that it says here in Proverbs chapter 22, verse 22, not to oppress the afflicted at the gate. Now, in ancient times, the gate of the city was where folk could come and the judge would be seated there, and that's where they were to come uh, to find protection from wrong and justice done to those who would oppress them. Uh, so the warning here is against judges who, under the color of the law, oppress the poor for personal gain. Uh, to patronize those also who take advantage of the less fortunate is as bad as if a person took advantage of that person themselves. And God has an, an issue with people who take advantage of those who cannot defend themselves, who are helpless, cannot protect themselves. He has a big issue with that. And, um, and so even not just individual dealings, people with people, uh, family members with family members or friends with friends, not to rob from the poor, etc., but also in, in courts, magistrates, in governments. If anyone is taking advantage of those who cannot defend themselves, the Lord will have an issue with them. There's no question about that. Over in Proverbs 23, verse 10, we're also, uh, they're also encouraged, we're also encouraged not to remove the landmarks of the fatherless, not to remove the landmarks of the fatherless. Uh, boundary lines back in those days were marked by small stones, or if you had, if they had pillars, larger stones, they would use those to mark the boundaries. Today we use GPS coordinates, so it's not so easy anymore to uh, to move boundary lines. Uh, but uh, but back then it was very easy to just move some stones. Uh, without accurate surveying methods, it would be easy to remove landmarks and defy the one defrauded to prove that it had been moved. It was impossible to prove. Well, the stone was there well, now it's here. How can you prove that it was there? It was just very difficult. And so here, 
God is saying, don't, uh, don't mess with boundary lines. Don't be greedy and ask for more than is yours. Respect the, prop, respect the, uh, the boundary lines of your neighbors. Uh, obviously, this was a real problem back in, uh, the, the, in biblical times. It still is a bit of a challenge today. Um, you can read more about removing the boundaries in Deuteronomy chapter 19, chapter 27. Then again, we read this in Proverbs 23, verse 10. It's also there in verse 28 of Proverbs chapter 22. So God has an issue with anyone who's removing boundary lines, taking advantage of those who cannot, uh, cannot defend themselves. And the issue is, and he tells us in Proverbs 22, that he will plead their cause. If there's something that will face the retribution of God, it is a greedy man or a greedy person or a greedy company or a greedy whoever who takes advantage of the defenseless. You remember the story of, of David and uh, and how he wanted a particular woman. Her name was Bathsheba. And uh, he got her by sending the husband of Bathsheba, Uriah, uh, to the front lines in the hopes that he would die. Nathan the prophet came along and told David a story about a rich man and a poor man, and how the rich man had everything he ever wanted, and the poor man didn't have hardly anything. And when a friend of the rich man came, he didn't want to give him of his own flock, prepare a, a lamb for food from his own flock, so he went to the poor man and took his only ewe, is only you. And David, when he heard the story, was mad, absolutely angry. Who is that man that would do this? Let me, let me have at him. And Nathan pointed his finger and said, thou art the man. You are the man, David. You have taken advantage of someone who only has one wife. You have, you're a king. You can have whatever you want. You have all the riches and you've, you've taken what wasn't yours. And from someone who doesn't have as much as you, and so uh, we know the story. David, um, the child that was born from Bathsheba, didn't live. Uh, and, and God said that there would be violence in the house of David all the days of his life, and truly there was. There are consequences to messing with those who cannot defend themselves. And God wants to make that very clear to us. There is a much better way to live than to take advantage of others. This is speaking of Job. Job's us asking these questions. This is Job 31, verses 16 to 21. He says, If I have kept the poor from their desire, or caused the eyes of the widow to fail, or eaten my morsel by myself so that the fatherless could not eat of it, but from my youth I reared him as a father, and from my mother's womb I guided the widow. If I have seen anyone perish for lack of clothing, or any poor man without covering, if his heart has not blessed me, and if he was not warned, warmed with the fleece of my sheep, if I have raised my hand against the fatherless when I saw I had help in the gate, then he says, let my arm fall from my shoulder. Let my arm be torn from the socket. For the destruction from God is a terror to me, and because of his magnificence, I cannot endure. All right, Zechariah chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. We're going to come over here. Uh, verse 9. Thus says the Lord of hosts, execute true justice, show mercy and compassion. Everyone to his brother, do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. Let none of you plan evil in his heart against his brother. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. Best way to deal with others, is treat them like you would want to be treated yourself. Amen. Uh, so great, uh, great counsel and great encouragement from the Word of God there. So universal truth number one, God is a defender of the helpless. 
and his people ought to be a helper of the helpless as well. Let's go to Tuesday's lesson. Let's take a look at universal truth number two. Universal truth number two. We're over in Proverbs chapter 23. Proverbs chapter 23. Universal truth number two. Envy never did anybody any good. Is that, is that okay? <laughs> Envy never did anybody any good. Envy is defined as a grudging regard for the advantages seen to be enjoyed by others. It, it carries with the idea of, of, uh, of, of looking closely or to look with maliciousness. Uh, you want something of somebody else's, you see. Someone suggested that envy is like standing in a line, a long line, at a theme park, waiting for a short and disappointing ride. Uh, you're standing there and you're anticipating getting into the line, can't move fast enough, and, uh, and you're, all the while you're looking at those just screaming and yelling and carrying on, and, and you're wishing you could have that experience yourself, um, but there they are. Envy is like a person standing in a line at a theme park waiting for a short and disappointing ride. Uh, envying those who appear to get away with murder is just as pointless. Let's take a look at that in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 17. Notice what it says. We're going to look at several verses. Do not let your heart envy who? Sinners. Be, uh, but be zealous for the fear of the Lord all the day, for surely there is a hereafter, and your hope will not be cut off. Jump over to chapter 24, verse 1. Do not be envious of evil men, nor desire to be with them. Verse 2. For their heart devises violence and their lips talk of troublemaking. And then look at verses 19 and 20. Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the wicked. For there will be no prospect for the evil man. The lamp of the wicked will be put out. Um, the... The admonition here is to not be envious of the sinner, the wicked. Uh, don't fret because of them. Uh, there is a tendency and temptation to envy evil men not, and women, not because of the evil they commit, but because they seem to live a happy and a carefree life. How is it that they do all those things and they get away with it and they seem to be happy and they seem to be joyous? And you contrast that with the strict disciplinary life of a Christian. If you look over at uh, verse 14 and 16 and 2 of chapter 23, it talks about having the knife to the throat, a rod on the back and reins for the lip. That's a strict disciplinary life. You contrast that with the, the, those who are getting away with what seems like murder. They look happy and, and enjoying themselves. Um, there's a tendency sometimes for the follower of Christ to be envious, not because of the evil that person does, but because that person seems to prosper and seems to be happy and get away with it. Um, but I wonder whether there ought not be more room for pity for the sinner than for envy. Uh, someone has Psalm 37. Who has Psalm 37? One. Over right over here. Fantastic. We're going to look at Psalm 37, chapter 37 and verses 1 through 11. Is it possible that the sinner, the wicked, the evil man or woman ought to be pitied more than, uh, than envied because of the evil that they do? Uh, the truth be told, sooner or later, sin catches up with a person. Isn't that right? You can't hide it forever. Everything that's, that's covered, Jesus said, is going to be exposed. And, um, and followers of Christ need to keep the big picture in their mind. So, Psalm 37, verses 1 through 11. Do 
do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass, and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his righteousness, a faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. For yet a little while, and the wicked shall be no more. Indeed, you will look carefully for his place, but it shall be no more. But the meek shall inherit the earth, and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Amen. Thank you. So what is God saying? Don't, don't worry about those who, get a, who seem to get away with murder. They're going to have their day. Uh, they're thinking about the immediate and the now. They're not thinking about the consequences of their actions. One day they're going to be facing the judge of all the earth. But you know these things. Think further ahead. Keep the big picture in mind. Don't worry about stuff going on now. Don't fret. Know that God is going to set things right when it's all said and done. The solution to the envy problem is keeping the big picture in mind. Being content. Uh, Philippians 4.11, Paul said, I have learned in whatsoever state I am, whether rich or poor, whether I'm in prison or free, in whatever state I am, therewith to be content. Uh, content. Contentment next to godliness is great gain. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. All right, let's go over to Wednesday's lesson. Let's look at universal truth number three. Universal truth number three, lifestyle choices affect our health. Lifestyle choices affect our health. Proverbs chapter 23, and let's look at verses 1 through 3 and 6 through 8. It says, When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you, and put a knife to your throat if you are given a man given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. Verses 6 through 8. Do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. For as he thinks in his heart, so is he. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. The morsel you have eaten, you will vomit up and you'll waste and waste your pleasant words. According to these verses, why should we watch what we eat? Why should we watch what we eat? We should watch what we eat because of what? Our health. Watch what we eat because of our health. That's basically it. We can go on to Thursday's lesson. You ready? Simple, isn't it? Very simple. God is encouraging us to be careful about what we eat. And uh, we should do so because we want to promote good health and not be led to imbibing things not fit for human consumption. When it talks about the knife to the throat, God is not suggesting that a man ought to kill himself if he can't control his appetite. He's saying, kill, kill the greed. Don't kill yourself, kill your greed. Because if you don't kill your greed, you're going to end up killing yourself. So kill the greed. Don't, uh, don't be a man given to appetite. Now, we all need food. There's no doubt about that. But if we can't control the appetite, we'll find it hard to control other areas of our life. In that uh, little book, 
councils, to diets, councils on diets and foods, uh, we're, in, we're told that an intemperate man is an impatient man, someone who cannot control uh, their appetite, their passions. You know, our first parents, what did they succumb to? They succumbed to appetite, and it's been humanity's problem ever since. Are we going to eat the donut or are we going to eat the apple? That's the, that's the dilemma. <laughs> if you have a donut every now and then, maybe you'll be okay, but eat more apples than donuts. Um, but thank the Lord, even though it is a problem in humanity, you remember one of the first, the first major temptation in the wilderness Jesus experienced? What was it over? Yeah, what you put in your mouth. And did Jesus gain the victory? Sure he did, after 40 days. I mean, some of us can't live four hours without eating, but Jesus, for 40 days without eating. And, and uh, the devil came along and said, if you be the son of God, take this stone, make it into bread. And Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, you see. And so we thank the Lord that Jesus overcame for us, and if he overcame, we can too, by depending upon him, by his grace, you see. You know, you'll find that if you have better control over your appetite, that truly you'll have better control over other areas of your life. Uh, I personally noticed that myself, and, and maybe some of you could testify to that as well. Why is God so concerned with my health? Why is God so concerned with my health? Does it affect my salvation? I tell people this, living well for me is an act of spiritual worship. That's what it is. Living well is an act of spiritual worship. While living well doesn't save me, because only Jesus can save me, it's born out of a love for God and my desire to do those things that please Him. Um, it's no secret that what we put in our stomachs affects our minds, and our minds affect, if our minds are affected, then it has potential to quiet the voice of God. How does God speak to us? God speaks to us through the, the mind. This is the avenue He's chosen to speak to us. And if, if, I've got a, if, I, if I'm unwell and I'm not, doing well, I'm not doing good, that's going to affect and cloud my mind, which prohibits the ability for God to speak to me. I mean, He'll speak to me, but I can't always quite hear Him, you see. So while eating right and healthy living shouldn't become our religion, we need to understand that it goes a long way to clearing the channels for God to communicate with us, and therefore it becomes very, very important, you see. Our health message is not so that we might live longer, but so that we might, that we might live well, and that we might have a close connection with God and hear His voice speaking clearly to us. Uh, there's a question, Richard, you had a question related to this, these verses, particularly verses 23 uh, chapter 23, verses 1 and 6. Uh, let me read those uh, so that we, we know what you're asking here. Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1, 3, and 6, it says, when you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you. Verse 3 says, do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive foods. And notice again, verse 6, do not eat the bread of a miser, nor desire his delicacies. So we're ready for your question, Richard. Yes, Pastor Chris, how do you reconcile Proverbs chapter 23, verses 1, 3, and 6, where the wise man admonishes us to watch what we eat, with Luke chapter 10, verse 8, where Jesus tells the disciples to eat whatever is put in front of them? Okay, so you remember what it says there in Luke chapter 10 and verse 8, Jesus said, and when, you, when someone takes you in, just sit down and eat eat what's before you. Basically, that's what he says. He says, each such, each such things that are before you. So, the question is, how do you reconcile that statement with the, the, the wise man who's saying, be careful what you eat and don't eat everything that's put before you? Uh, first of all, we need to remember this is not a contradiction. When Jesus said such things that are put before you, he was simply saying, don't ask for more than is put before you. 
So that's really what the immediate context means. Don't ask for more. Don't be greedy, which is what we've been talking about. Don't be, don't be asking more. Just be content with what a person puts in front of you, you see. Um, as a matter of fact, that counsel runs more in line with what we read here in Proverbs chapter 23. Consider carefully what's put before you. Now, some people use Luke chapter 10 and verse 8 to suggest that you can eat whatever you want, clean, uh, unclean meats. Uh, you can even drink a little bit of alcohol from time to time if you want. Um, but uh, Jesus isn't suggesting that. Remember, when he sent the 70 out and he gave them that instruction, what was he, where did he send them to? He sent them to Jerusalem and Samaria. And folk in both of those towns and cities were very, they, their dietary habits were very strict and, and complied with the Old Testament dietary laws. So when Jesus said, eat what's before you, he knew that what was going to be put before them was going to be pretty good anyway. But we still have the admonition, always be careful, because those who put food before you, you know, think about the food industry, it's all for profit. A lot of the nutrition and uh, nutritional value is removed. Uh, what does it say there in Proverbs 23 and verse 8? But his heart is not with you. God's children have different priorities than the world's priorities. God's children have different priorities. We're preparing to live with God forever. We want to serve God with all our vigor and with all our might and with all our energy. Can't do that if we're not well. Can't do that if we're not eating well and living well and getting plenty of exercise. So we need to remember that the priorities of the world are not the priorities of God's children. Just think about Fruit Loops and hot dogs and, and there we go again, donuts. Nutritional value extracted, not a lot of good stuff there, you see. And yet God gives us good stuff to eat. Think about Daniel for a moment. Daniel, when he was sent into Babylon, everything that was done to Daniel and his three friends was calculated to undo his religious convictions and to make him Babylonian. You think the devil would like to do the same thing to God's children today? Sure he would. Sure he would. And so we need to be careful about what we put in our mouths. That includes not even entertaining the thought that social drinking is acceptable especially when we consider that 50% of all homicides in North America, nearly 50% of all homicides in North America are related to alcohol. Nearly 50% of road accidents on our highways are related to alcohol. Fif nearly 50% of, of domestic violence cases are related to alcohol. Why would a Christian ever think about putting that stuff to their lips? Just because society legalizes it doesn't make, mean that God legalizes it. As a matter of fact, God has outlawed it for his children. Amen. So we need to be careful about what we take into our bodies. Well, I want to just tell you on Thursday's lesson, the universal truth is simply this. God has a special message to be proclaimed to the entire world. God has a special message to be proclaimed to the entire world. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 11 and 12 tell us that we have a responsibility to help someone who we see in danger to, to prevent them from getting into trouble and to, to save their lives in essence. And what is the responsibility? What is the message of God's last day children? The message that we've been given is the three angels' messages. Nothing should detract us, uh, deter us from giving that message. It's the message of hope. It's a message that will save people and prepare them for the oncoming onslaught that will take place prior to Jesus' soon return. We can't become unfocused. We need to keep our eyes on Christ and his last day message and, uh, and share it with as many people as possible. God will hold us accountable if we do not share that message with others, if we water it down, if we don't clearly declare and give the truth. Well, in closing here, we just simply suggest that truth is the surest and the simplest way to live our lives. God recognizes 
uh, and blesses those who live truthfully and who share and declare the truth with others. God wants us to live upright lives. Amen. I want to be able to tell the truth no matter what the, uh, the outcome might be, whatever the, um, the consequences of telling the truth might be. I just want to be honest to God's word and honest in telling the truth. How about you today? Glad you uh, were able to join us here for the study this morning. And those that are viewing us, thank you for joining us as well. We want to make sure you call in for the free offer. It's number 21509. And uh, be sure to uh, call 916-457-6511 or email us at csh at org and ask for that. Uh, write in, let us know how you're enjoying the programs. Tell us where you're uh, watching and viewing from. And uh, don't forget too, the lesson studies are available on our website and you can access those too. Thanks for joining us and God bless you.